Hey, Roy. Hey, Tim. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Thanks so much for taking the time, brother. Yeah, no problem. I, I'm happy to be here. So how are you doing and, and where are you? Yeah, um, I'm doing fine. Um, thanks for asking. Uh, I, I and my wife and um, our, our daughter, we're, um, we're all situated in Diamond Bar, California. And um, we're, I don't know, we're, we're handling the lockdown okay, uh, all things considered. Um, I, we're not at each other's throats and we're not uh, disintegrating. I, I think, in fact, we all kind of like it. <laughs> um, we, we enjoy each other's company. And um, I think we're learning a lot about like, wow, how, how little time we didn't have for one another when we were all busy with going to the office and everything like that. So uh, this has been quite a different change of pace for us and we actually prefer it. Well, praise God. So not itching to get back to the office, really enjoying this. Not really. I mean, I do, there are aspects of the office that I do miss, but um, if I were to choose between the two, I would, I'd rather just be at home more. <laughs> That's good. That's a grace. Well, so you are a marriage and family therapist and, and you specialize in caring for those struggling with sexual addictions. Right. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk uh, today. And just to start us off in this conversation, what, what have you noticed to be some of the unique ways people struggle with sex addiction in mm -hmm. COVID-19? Mm -hmm. So, you know, as you and every person knows, uh, we are uh, relegated to staying at home. And so, um, you know, for, for people that I work with, uh, I, I work with all types of sex addiction, um, except for the, those who are sex offenders. Um, so I don't, I don't deal with those who are, uh, who could be arrested for their, uh, sexual behaviors. Um, but you know, it runs a uh, there's a wide uh, range of, uh, behaviors, uh, you know, frequenting massage parlors, going to strip clubs, uh, domies in K-Town, um, just a lot of different ways. And so because people are sheltering in place, they're not actually going to those places for those sexual behaviors. Uh, so uh, those are obviously declining, but, um, and as well as just, you know, what do you call that? Just being promiscuous, you know, with, with uh, anonymous partners, um, actual sexual engagement, that's, that's obviously declining, but what's uh, elevating like crazy is uh, all sorts of online uh, sexual experiences, uh, virtual as well as just fantasy. So, uh, Pornhub, uh, I'm sure has a huge spike, uh, just as well as going to, uh, check out the, uh, the most provocative Instagram accounts and Facebook accounts. Um, what's interesting Tim, though, is that, uh, because especially for married folk, uh, their, their way of, um, consuming this material has been always been in secrecy in mm -hmm. privacy, mm -hmm. uh, because they are always surrounded by their spouse or their kids. Uh, they are viewing these less. And I think that withdrawal is, uh, causing them to do other things, you know, maybe binging something else. Maybe it's a substance, maybe it's, um, maybe it's TV, um, 
or it's causing a lot of aggravation between the spouses because they don't really know how to handle all of that, um, that angst that they feel. So there might be a decline in married people regarding how much they view their view pornography, but for singles who live alone, um, the, it looks like it's increasing all the more, uh, the binging of pornography and, um, video games and, uh, just Netflixing all that kind of stuff that seems to be increasing. So, uh, some interesting trends, uh, that we're, that we're looking at regarding, um, sexual behaviors and where you're at kind of in your stage of life. Mm. Oh, that's so helpful. I think just to see that the heart wants to find another escape. Uh, if it's not going to find this, it's going to latch itself onto to something else. Yeah. Well said. That's right. The, the, the heart does want to escape from things that are just hard to deal with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, you mentioned like, especially for singles right now, like the pornography is just exploding in their lives. So if they're coming to you, wanting to have this conversation, asking for help, where, where do you start with them? Yeah. Um, first of all, it takes a lot for them to ask for help, especially in this way. Uh, I think because there's something about sexual addiction that has more of a taboo feel to it than, let's say, other types of addiction, such as substance or gambling or um, gaming, you know, things like that. I, no one likes to admit addictions anyway, but I think sexual addiction in particular seems to be very, very taboo. Mm -hmm. So I give them, uh, a lot of, uh, I try to give them a lot of, um, uh, I don't know, like kudos, you know, for, for reaching out for help, uh, making sure that they don't feel judged by me. Um, and, um, you know, I let them know that there are um, large percentages of people who are struggling like they are struggling, but the vast majority of them are not reaching out for help. So I give them a lot of credit for reaching out for help. And um, when they decide, you know, I, I usually try to ask them what motivates them for change. And if they say that... Um, and I know that you mentioned sing single people, but uh, I think most of peop the people who reach out to me are actually married. Mm. Uh, and so they're, they're usually in some kind of a crisis. Um, they feel like uh, if they don't get this under control, you know, because their, their wife like uh, confronted them about this, then they might lose their marriage. Uh, they might lose access to their kids. So uh, they feel motivated by fear to, um, to make change. And so that generally is enough for us to really get started. Um, just because I know that they will feel that external motivation to like keep going with the steps, mm -hmm. but for the single folks who maybe don't have that, uh, that external consequence, um, sometimes they just feel like, oh, this just isn't right. Um, and they could be Christian or non-Christian, but they, they just feel like this isn't right. I shouldn't keep going with this. And I usually provide a, uh, a simple exercise in the beginning. Uh, well, let me backtrack a little bit. I usually give them an assessment that, uh, that allows me to, uh, figure out like what levels of addiction that they have. Uh, and that, that's just really helpful for me to figure out what I'm dealing with here. But after the assessment, you know, as I think about them, their motivation for change, 
I usually provide for them a, an intervention where they can list out um, all the different problems that they are currently going through, life problems, as well as the, the consequences that could happen if, um, if they were to continue with this habit. So a lot of times I think you feel like, okay, well, I, c- I could stop this anytime that I want. But, you know, history has shown that they haven't been able to do so. So, you know, I would say, let's just say that all things remain the same and you're in this five years from now. Uh, what would be the consequence of you staying in this habit, this pattern for the next five years? And they say, well, in the next five years, I'm hoping to be at least be married. Like if, it is, if these are single people talking to me, I hope to be married. Mm-hmm. And I say to them, okay, so if, um, if you're married and you still have this habit going on, you have a couple of options. You can either hide this pattern from your spouse and have to live with the fact that you are hiding this gigantic thing and, and think about all the energy in trying to cover your tracks, yeah. um, deleting all your search histories, uh, making sure that, you know, you have either burner accounts, uh, you're trying to pay for, you know, uh, porn subscriptions with some sort of credit card that, that your wife has no access to, like all this work to try to keep this a secret. Um, and then if you're going to lie to your wife, then you need to have extra lies that cover up for that first lie. So, um, so there's a lot of work you need to do to keep on lying to your spouse. And then when there are, when there's that many lies, the, the capacity to really be intimate with your wife at an emotional, spiritual, intellectual level, all these things, relational level, it's just, it's just not there. Right. So you have to have this, okay, great. You're married, but how intimate can you really be? Um, the other consequence would be your spouse knows that you have this issue. And so now she's traumatized. She feels like you have been keeping this from her for the past five years. Do I even know you? And, uh, maybe she might go ahead and, um, and you know, they don't have a tolerance for it. They have zero tolerance from, from, from the very beginning. So they say, I'm out, uh, I divorce you, or they just might want to be separated from you. Uh, there's a lot of chaos that ensues when they discover that you've been having this thing for a long, long time. So, uh, that could be a consequence. Um, and as, as the client really tries to visualize what could possibly happen in five years, if they continue in this way, they then realize, oh, wow, I think I better address this now, you know, so that by the time that I do marry, um, you know, I could say to them, I've had this sexual addiction problem, uh, but I've gotten treatment for it. And I am, uh, I've been sober for three and a half years, you know, I've been sober for seven years and, um, and their partner really feels like confident that this is not going to be an issue moving forward as long as their structures are in place. Mm -hmm. So this is just my pragmatic way of, and this is not something that I invented, by the way, this is just some, some things that we learn in training, um, to really help the client um, realize for themselves that this really is an issue. This is not just a shame on you. God doesn't like this sort of issue. This is a, 
no, there's going to be a lot of destruction uh, in your path up ahead if this continues. So let's really get a handle on this and I'll help you, you know, I'll help you get there. So that's kind of how we'd start off with if someone were to contact me. Oh man, that's so helpful. I love how both like that entry point is this safe, shame-free relationship where, you know, you were really thanking them that the immense courage it takes to come to you. Absolutely. This reminds me of, you know, God gives grace to the humble, right? Like that's, that's what he wants. That humble step of please help is huge. And then to, to connect the damages, the devastating damages of sexual addiction, sexual sin to the, to re, it kind of brings us into reality, right? Out of the fantasy. And I just, it reminds me of Proverbs five, just that simple talk the father is having with his son there. Yes. Imagine what life is going to look like if you exactly. go down this road, right? You'll give your exactly. with strangers, your strength to foreigners, and you're going to groan at the end of your life. Yeah. I really appreciate that kind of bringing us back to this is, this is what is real. Yeah. 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 Well, so then, um, how do you help someone struggling with a sex addiction? I know you've already kind of talked about this, but kind of reframe Mm -hmm. and begin to build out categories for this struggle. Sure. Okay. Um, what we're dealing with is, Primarily, um, I think I think it might start off as maybe a moral issue, a spiritual issue, like you know, oh, how we, you know, how we objectify uh, a person, um, or how we, you know, uh, betray another person's trust, and these are all things that you know are are pretty clear about, okay, we should not do these things. And so we violate that, maybe that moral code. But, you know, a lot of times these behaviors start when we're young, when we are um, maybe, I, I would say the majority of the people that I work with, their sexual behaviors started when they're around eight. That's the average. Mm-hmm. When they stumble on a... Um, you know, if, if they're more like my age, they stumbled across a uh, magazine stash, right? Uh, that, that's where pornography came from in, in my day is just, um, uh, you know, either a, a relative's stash or you're, you go to your friend's slumber party and their father has a stash, something like that. So you're like, you know, or, or you, you watch a VHS tape of a R-rated movie and then uh, that kind of uh, fires up your neurons and you're just like, you're kind of off to the races then. Mm-hmm. Um, but even for younger folks who have only known the internet, uh, you know, they click on this one banner and then here comes a pop-up and it's like, oh my gosh, what is this? Mm-hmm. So uh, when they start that young, uh, your brain kind of latches onto these things. And I think that's just the way that God designed the brain to be like, like it, uh, the brain is such a complex organ and the way that it's structured is that the different parts of the brain are supposed to be in good communication with one another. But when you start to go down a path where you are watching something or experiencing something and all your neurons are firing up, well, your brain's going to want that again. It, that's just it, the way that it wants. Um, I saw it in a great video 
and you know, listeners can watch this video. It's called, uh, if you Google uh, Road to Brighton, B-R-I-G-H-T-O-N, there's this lady with a British voice narrating this short clip about how uh, the brain works when it comes to sexual, sexual addiction. But you know, how the brain gravitates towards things that are super desirable, such as um, you know, the finest wine, the most amazing chocolate, um, but also how the brain works when you are dealing with things that are terrifying, traumatizing, you know, like those with, with spider phobias or water phobia or heights, that kind of thing. The brain starts to react to those things and it wants to either um, stay away from it at all costs, like you'll feel this real visceral reaction, or it'll desire it at all costs. So when we see something that's just mind blowing when we were young, we're going to naturally want that again. Mm-hmm. So what might've started as a moral decision is like, Oh, maybe I shouldn't do this. Well, if you keep on going back to it, now the brain has adapted to that thing. And so it's going to want it, want it, want it. So, um, the more that you engage in that, the more that the, 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 the brain's at structure actually changes to make it easier to get access and to, easier to think about those things again and again. So I try to help clients realize that uh, not only could this be a spiritual issue, but maybe even more um, powerfully, there's a brain issue going on. So we want to uh, lean on some of the good brain research out there. And when you look at the brain structure of someone who is steeped in their addiction, and then you look at the brain, stru- the brain structure of the same person 90 days afterwards when they have abstained from that self-violation, you'll be amazed to see how the structure is different. Hmm. Like it just shows that God made the brain to be a very malleable uh, organ that can kind of heal itself if given the, the proper time to abstain from harmful behaviors. So as I try to teach people that these first 90 days are very important to give your brain rest, to give your brain a break. We're not going to go deep into trauma focus or family of origin stuff or whatever. We're not going to give yourself that opportunity to be traumatized and then try to go back to the porn to soothe yourself. Instead, we're just going to go towards what is it in your life that you keep gravitating towards? Is it, is it devices? You know, is it the massage parlor? Is it the strip clubs? Um, is it anonymous sex? And um, what can we do structurally speaking so that you don't have access to those things for the first 90 days? Mm. If, it, if it's a porn blocker, if it's a phone call from your sponsor every single day, if it's going to group every single night, if it's whatever, then so be it. If that's what it takes for you to abstain for 90 days, let's carve out that path right now. And then once we're done with those 90 days and we've kind of really felt that your brain has had some time to heal, then we'll roll up our sleeves some more and start doing some of the, the deeper work of abandonment issues, of, of fears, of, um, of traumas, of worthlessness. Uh, all these things. And, you know, this could be for Christians or non-Christians, just really doing that deeper work. And for some of the Christians, they might even need to do some healing work when it comes to, to their own relationship with God 
or the church. Like they, they feel like God has done something to spite them or God has given blessings to other people and not to them. And just being able to really talk about that and um, heal some of these things. Uh, because sometimes when we feel so antagonized by God, um, then even though, you know, scripture says that's not the case, but you know, the mind has a way of convincing ourselves that this is true. And when we really start to believe that not only is the world against us, but God is against us too, there's only one real way to get relief from that. And that is through these escape hatches. And, you know, these kids have found ways to find these escape hatches through sexual means uh, when they feel like the whole world is against them, including their family and God and everything like that. So uh, there's a, there's a protocol to follow as we go through this. And, and the research shows that this, these protocols really are effective for, for long-term sobriety. Yeah. That's so, that's so good. I love how you kind of see the whole person and uh, people kind of often come in for counseling, right? And they just are so problem focused. So to kind of help take a step back and say, no, you're an embodied soul. This is what's going on in your brain. Yeah. Like it's, it's a wider battle. There's other things going on in right. your life, from your past, from other relationships. It's a longer battle than your expectations might be. Totally. It's a lifelong, we're all sexually broken and it's going to look a certain way for each of us. And, and it's deeper. I mean, one of the things I talk about is worship. You know, we're, we are prone, we are made for worship. We're built mm. for worship. And mm. we can easily replace the God who are made to worship with things, things he's given us, even good things. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's that addiction. Right. Right. And I think it, it's helpful for, even though it's painful for, you know, the, the spouse, uh, to, to see that they've been doing these things. Um, uh, um, it, it's helpful for the spouse to also know how addiction works and how this has been present long before they have ever been in a relationship with each other because they naturally, they tend to take it personally. Right. Um, what does that, um, what does that stripper have that I don't have? Um, what does um, that person that you're doing anonymous sexting with um, have that I don't have? Like it's, it's a real comparison game. So, um, and I, I totally understand that because it, it's, it's a very, you know, you're, you're giving away something about yourself, your sexuality that's really meant for this, this covenant relationship. Um, but if you really understand how addiction works, it's not so much that they are comparing this to that. It's that they've been conditioned to escape really bad feelings through these means. And it could be someone who is quote unquote hot, or it could be just someone who's available. You know, it really doesn't matter. They, they will find a way to um, just deal with their pain um, or to feel something uh, through these sexual means, just like someone else might go towards Hagen dazs ice cream to, to comfort their pain, or they will just scroll mindlessly through social media just to kind of numb themselves from, um, from the rigors of life. So, um, it, it does take a lot of education, I think, and a lot of conversation to make this be, um, a bit more normalized, uh, it doesn't mean that the pain is any less, but I think the more that we understand what's actually going on, the more we can have uh, helpful conversations that can lead towards health. 
That's so good. And I think that allows the kind of the social supports to know this is how we can be part of helping them too, right? It's not right. one thing, but this is, this is kind of our role to play. This is the spouse's role to play. This is the right. role to play. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the, the, the spouses who, who do uh, discover these things, they need a lot of support because you know, the, the trauma that they feel from being, uh, from experiencing that level of, uh, of sexual betrayal, um, that's akin to any other type of trauma out there, you know, whether it's, um, you know, combat trauma, Mm. um, whether it is, uh, trauma from being in a, a horrible, uh, car accident, uh, the trauma of witnessing, you know, a, a death, uh, and just kind of that, that psychological trauma stays with you. And so, uh, these people will experience a lot of the same symptoms, sleeplessness, um, loss of appetite. Uh, sometimes their hair starts falling out. Yeah. Um, I, I, sometimes teeth start chattering for no reason. Uh, it's just because there's this, this, this neurological, uh, uh, response, um, the sympathetic system is just, it's, it's getting fried, uh, from, from this level of threat. And so, um, they're not going to be thinking straight. They're not going to be acting straight. So, um, they, they need a lot of support just as much as the addict does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so helpful. I really appreciate you reframing it, not just for them, but for us, I think all of us listening this is just so helpful. Well, the last question here, knowing that we all are sexually broken, how can we all care more for each other? uh, during this, during this time? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll just, I'll just put it out there. Uh, I think those of you who, um, uh, may have stumbled upon my podcast, it's called S a speakeasy S a standing for sexual addiction. Um, you know, that that's, that's the podcast that I produce that is helpful for, uh, just helping people understand more about sexual addiction. And in my first episode, I talked about my, uh, introduction to pornography, um, and a little bit about my own uh, sexual addiction history. And um, I, I feel like um, um, it's it, the, way that the, the way that the church can help out is, is those who have experienced it themselves can, um, can talk more freely about it. Uh, I know that's kind of a tough ask. Uh, we're really saying basically, um, don't care about the response. Right. Um, but you know, I, I've been, all I can say is I think I've just had this type of encounter with, with God in such a way that, um, the, the placing of the shame that comes with sexual addiction at the foot of the cross it wasn't theoretical for me. It, it didn't stay at the level of theological, um, some nice theological truth to, to tuck away uh, for myself. It really became something that I experienced personally, where I realized um, God's view towards me is very similar to Jesus's encounter with the woman in John chapter eight, um, that woman was about to be executed for her adultery. And, you know, whether she was a sexual addict, I don't know, but if it, if we're talking about adultery, we're talking about some sort of devastating outcome, whether she devastated her husband or whether she was the mistress 
and she devastated another man's wife, whatever it is. But there's some awful thing that occurred because of these sexual acts. And so um, as they were about to execute her, you know, Jesus stays their hand and his attitude towards her is, um, I don't condemn you. I mean, this is a condemnable offense, but Jesus being Jesus, you know, he says, he, I don't condemn you, but I do want you to stop sinning in this way. And so I had that same type of experience with him where I knew that my sexual addiction history was something that was just going to keep on going unless I do something about it. And when I really experienced Jesus um, treating me as if he treated that woman in John 8, uh, that was a game changer for me. And if I knew that Christ is for my health and Christ is for my recovery, um, and also so is my wife. My wife is for me and, and, and for the work that I'm doing and for the stories that I'm sharing about my own history. Uh, I could actually kind of care less, you know, about how the rest of the world takes my story. Um, and so because I'm able to have that anchoring, I can share with churches. I can share with my own clients. I can share on through the podcast. Like this is, this is a real thing. Um, I've gone through it too. And, um, I don't want to, um, make it seem as if sexual addiction is just um just a bunch of perverts right who who shouldn't have a place at the table of christ uh, i think this is something that um that probably more people than we realize are suffering from because of the brokenness that we have that we've inherited um through original sin um, we, we'd like to think that, oh, we, we are, maybe we're broken in this particular way, but not in, in that way. Right. But no, we're, we're all broken, uh, sexually speaking. And sometimes that sexual brokenness is not just about, oh, I'm not able, I'm not, I'm not able, able to perform in bed. No, this is more about like the, the things that we think about, the things that we infatuate about, um, the ways that we are compulsive about. And yeah, I think sexual addiction is going to be one of the aspects of sexual brokenness. So I don't think it does the church any good to kind of ignore that. But I think for those who really have experienced the kind of release of shame um, that is, in a way, the essence of the good news, um, the more we can talk about it, the more that we can actually have programs within the church that uh, help people to get recovery, um, the more we can get funding for, let's say, sex addiction therapists to be working alongside some of these people, then um, I think the less Satan has a foothold um, in the lives of, of uh, church members, just because it's such a devastating thing and no one's talking about it. Um, and I think that's that's the way that Satan would have it, right? He, he, he wants this to remain secretive. And um, uh, I, I don't think that's, that's the way to go. I, I, I think to shine light on it, um, to put funding towards it, to, to have more testimonies about it, um, that's, and I'll be the first one to start it off. You know, uh, I'll, 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 um, 
I'll be the first leg in the in the relay race, and uh, I'll, I'd gladly pass that baton to another person um, and 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 do this thing. Well, I thank you so much. I mean, I, I think what you're saying is is so so important. That is the story of the gospel, the story of scripture, right? You just Adam and Eve are naked; they feel shame. God mm-hmm. clothes them. Revelation: We are standing in His presence, and we're clothed. You know, yeah, right. Has taken those who have experienced defilement, experienced you know uh, being an outcast, and He's welcomed us. He's cleansed us. He's clothed us. And I think by you sharing your story of how He's done that for you personally, you're really introducing us to that storyline. And I, mm-hmm. I challenge to us to to con- continue to tell those stories and to connect people to this to this great hope that is really how we're meant to live with each other of kind of reclaimed identities uh, in Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And and to that point, you know, when I run my groups and these are small groups, a maximum of six people in, in, in our room or or in our, in our zoom chat right now, but you know, for these people, that room and that chat room are maybe the only place that they've ever experienced that level of authenticity and grace um, at the same time. Um, the, the potential for shame is so great, but when they are able to share uh, not only their history, but let's say they had a relapse that week, and um, you know, they would just dare not share this with anyone else, especially not people in the church, which is, that sucks that we have to say it like that, right? But um, when, they, when they share that in a group, there's just so much um, grace extended towards them, uh, like Jesus did to the woman, um, and they feel it. Like there are there are tears shed, you know, mm-hmm. saying, "I'm I'm so disappointed in myself. I thought I could do it." And as I look, um, you, you're trying to do this by willpower, um, but you know, let's let's find a better way, uh, and we'll help you. And um, and and when when there's celebration of you know, I mentioned the 90 days before of letting that brain rest. When people reach their 90 days, there is celebration in our, in our room that just feels like we, we can't help but feel like maybe the angels are rejoicing too, you know? So it's such a, it's such a great um, experience of holiness um, kind of getting stronger and stronger in the lives of these people. Mm-hmm. And I just, I wish more of the church could experience it. You know, I wish not only could I have that, more people in my office, but I, I just wish, I wish this sort of thing would be happening in the church itself, you know, on, on a church campus. Uh, and who knows, maybe it'll take another generation. I don't know. I hope not, but, um, I, I just, I, I love being able to share these stories of, of celebration and of authenticity and of grace being extended because you're right. This is just another, uh, experience of the gospel being uh, manifest in, in these, in these people's lives. Roy, thank you so much. I think you've given all of us listening and myself personally, so much hope, so much encouragement. I, I appreciate just the, the way you incarnate Christ to those you minister to and allow them to feel uh, just his love. So I just, thank you so much. Thank you for giving us your time today. And um, if you guys listening in would like resources, we're going to put them below, uh, below this podcast. So thank you guys so much. Oh, it's great uh, being here with you, Tim. And uh, I, I, I love how you are um, just 
Yeah, using the gifts that God has given to you and and your blend of experience and your education and um, uh, heading up a, a ministry that is so needed uh, in the church and uh, yeah, it's, it's a blessing uh, just getting to know you uh, better over these past uh, couple of days as well. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm thankful to ex- for the experience. Thanks so much, Roy. I really appreciate it.